And now that we're almost 20 years past 9-11, I'm going to do a, a very solemn 9-11 memorial episode commemorating 20 years. I guess I sort of am, though, <laughs> saying that. I'm like, you know what? That's actually uh, sort of what I'm about to do. But no, it's, it really doesn't concern 9-11. It's just that time period. Because what was significant about that, I mean, obviously, George W. Bush becoming president was already a part of it. But there was kind of a, a conservative political backlash against like a, like a, a society that had grown increasingly left, a culture that had grown increasingly left. It was kind of like, you know, the Christian identity was still a lot stronger than and a lot more powerful. So they really banded together in addition to this, you know, neocon, neocon faction that dominated the Republican Party. You know, whereas now it's way more split up, you know, it's way more factional. Like Trump's felt really just disoriented and fractured. The Repu- I wouldn't even say he fractured it. I think it was already like when you look at, you know, who Obama ran against, like that just had no momentum, nothing. So I think it's, it's not even I think it was already pretty fractured. And then Trump's felt just stepped in and made it that much more weird. But anyway, um. Like, so it's like when I think about, you know, post 9-11 and and especially the several years after that, like less 2001, less late 2001, early 2002, and more like 2003, 2004, like thinking about that, that was really a sweet spot in many ways for creative expression. Because on one hand, like the culture had become more politically correct. And that's what people referred to it as at the time. Like that was what every single... That's what everybody complained about. I mean, Bill Maher's show before that had been called Politically Incorrect. And whenever somebody whenever somebody did something, like, like just for example, like if you were to be like saying something as an example and you were to be like, well, if, if he should think, somebody might be like, you mean he or she? Like that one was pretty big for at least when I was growing up. Because a lot of the books and things you would read would – refer to the, um, they, they would use a masculine pronoun in, in, when just giving an example, like get, when giving like a general example of someone doing something it would be like, if he were to think, and then there was this push to be like, well, say he or she, this push to be inclusive in your writing. And so you, you started to see that more and more, he or she. And somebody who didn't like that would say, oh, I'm so sick of political correctness. You know, that was the typical response is to refer to it as political correctness. And it's really only been in the last few years that that I I barely ever hear that term. I barely ever hear the term political correctness used like it's nowadays. Everybody's just saying woke. But it's pretty much the same thing, part of the same thing at the very least, but. So it was an interesting time, like going back to like, let's say 2003, 2004, because on one hand you had that sort of political correctness was really ramping up, like not to the degree it would like a decade later, but it was really ramping up to where, you know, things were, you know, the culture was becoming more and more focused on diversity and inclusion which are now like an industry, like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like that's really become an entire industry. 
unto itself, like a profession in, in many cases, like most companies, many companies these days have a department for that, or they have a, a representative. But you were seeing like the, you know, it, it, it had become much more influential in the culture by that time. You know, we were like, you know, close to four decades after the late sixties and it was, the culture had just shifted that way. So on one hand, you, you were kind of fighting against that and it was more okay to do that. Like I mentioned South Park yesterday, and that was really the, you know, aside from being just a, a really well-made, funny show, like that was one of the big draws for South Park because it's like they were willing to say the things that nobody was willing to say. And they challenged that political correctness often, obviously. You know, that was what they were known for. But they equally challenged like the sort of neocon evangelical group. And so they were like fighting that war on two fronts culturally. Because at that time, to be in favor of free speech and free expression meant you were very likely to offend both the right wing and the left wing, or at least factions of those. So it was a very interesting time in that way to where it wasn't, it, it didn't feel like you had to pick a side. You just... It was kind of a given that you very well might offend both those groups. And of course, there were less platforms to do that. You know, people weren't on social media. If you were saying offensive stuff, it was on some forum. You know, so that decentralization with the Internet in particular. But I mean, South, I mentioned South Park because it's like that was an extremely popular TV show. I mean, it still is. So it's like even the most mainstream, you know, Comedy Central, like, as mainstream as it gets and their flagship show is very offensive and offensive against everybody but not in a blunt way like that's what was so good about South Park especially like at its prime like I think I, I don't remember when it was but it seemed like it was a few years in I don't because I feel like the earliest South Park was a little more crude and blunt and like gross out oriented if I remember right, um, and I didn't keep up on it. Like I, at some point, I just stopped watching them. Of course, but of course. But then, uh, uh, at some point, though, like they really hit their stride, and I remember, like they were really offering like biting social commentary, and even though they were offending everybody, it wasn't in that like stupid like slogan like. I hate everybody equally. You know, it wasn't in that stupid kind of way. It was very sharp because it was like there was tons of nuance to it. I, I don't know. I mean, I think you're either a South Park fan or you're not. But it's like there was a spe specific period I'm thinking of where it was like they really found their niche and offered just like honestly some amazing. Like when I think about like social commentary in entertainment, I'm like they really did some of the best. And I think what helped that was the fact that like it wasn't like you watched South Park and thought they're right wing. Oh, they're conservatives. Oh, I bet they voted for Trumpsfeld. Nor did you say like, oh, they're libs. Oh, my God, those libs. You know, it's like you didn't watch South Park and make that distinction. And what's interesting, though, is I remember a certain point when people started writing articles and talking about that. And I feel like it was around. I mean, people were probably doing it all along. But I remember like actually seeing that surface 
in a somewhat mainstream way where people were, were talking about the politics of South Park. And there was a term that somebody came up with, I think it was in an article, but they referred to South Park Republicans. And they described it as, like, other people described it as kind of a libertarian show. I don't think it was either of those things at all. But you could, in, but I think that the reason why people were suddenly referring to it that way coincided with increasing politicization in everything. And it wasn't to the degree it was today because, and people might be doing this. You know, I haven't paid attention to what's going on with South Park or what people are saying about it. I mean, I, for all I know, it's not even on anymore. Uh, last, I, I think it was as of recently, but, you know, it is, it is one of those things where, like, I'm sure people are dissecting it politically today. But it also, it's sort of grandfathered in, you know, and it's it's too big to fail. So it's not going to be, it's not going to face the scrutiny that many other things did. That many other things do. But it is one of those things where if it were to be brand new today, like like I said, it is grandfathered in, and I think that's helped it weather a lot of storms. But uh, I think that if it were to come out and it was a brand new show today, like still equal quality, like just as good, just as enjoyable, well done, you know, you do wonder, like you do wonder, like if it would immediately be interpreted. I mean, that happened to another Comedy Central show that was new in the Trumpsfeld era, where it was immediately cast in a, in a highly political light and it was canceled. And it was basically by guys who did, did you know, offensive humor, but in a very nuanced way that was social commentary. If you're familiar with uh, like MDE, that's who I'm talking about, where it was like they, they had gotten popular and, you know, and they were offensive. I mean, they really did push all the right buttons. And whether or not you consider that a reflection of the members' beliefs or any of that doesn't really make a difference because I believe if that show had existed on Comedy Central for 20 years, nobody would bat an eye. They'd be kind of like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's a, hey, baddie, come on. That's a frog. You don't need it. I don't want you messing with frogs. I've had like five frogs who just live on my back deck and catch bugs because there's a light back there. And so far I've been pretty lucky with Batty not not doing anything. I just don't trust it though. Just don't trust it. I love it though. I mean, it, but it's, it's become a hazard because I have to watch him very carefully when he goes out there. I don't want him to go after a frog, but I love having him out there. There's never been so many. It's incredible. I don't know what it is, why there are so many these days. Um, but you know this, this, you know MDE and those guys. It's like, yeah, they they are offensive. I mean, I, I'm not going to argue they're not offensive as people, as a show. But I mean, there was much more going on with their shows, like both the one that was on Comedy Central and the others. There was much more going on than just guys bluntly trying to be offensive or pass some kind of like insidious message. Like I, I, didn't, I never got that impression at all. And, but it, it was one of those things where if, if it had been on TV for 20 years, people, I think, might have looked at it differently. Like if something had entered into the cultural sphere before every single thing had to have a political alignment, before it had to basically declare its allegiance, I feel like it wouldn't have been a problem. And so South Park benefits in that way. And I mean, it's not worth exploring some like hypothetical scenario where it's like, what if South Park came out today? Because you hear that a lot. You hear a lot of commentary where people say, 
Like we wouldn't be able to do that today. But you know, it is insightful when people say that. Like I think it was John Cleese from Monty Python who he's become controversial for doing what he's always done. You know, he's another example of it. Um, but he's made statements. I think he's he said like we wouldn't be able to do this today, and you know that's a pretty common sentiment. But that's coming from the people who did it, which is what makes it interesting. Like instead of being just like a tired talking point, like when someone who actually was in the thing they're talking about, like when it's John Cleese saying that he wouldn't have been able to do some skit or movie or whatever it is, you know, I've never even followed John Cleese. You know, I've never actually even, um, I've never seen Monty Python. You haven't seen Monty Python? <laughs> That's the best phantom. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I've never even seen Monty Python. I, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen anything of his. I know, I know that I've seen bits and pieces. It's like cultural osmosis. Like even being a kid growing up in America, cultural osmosis passes like some Monty Python onto you. People talk about it a lot. But anyway, he, he's become a big, um, he's become very outspoken about free speech. I mean, I assume he always was. I mean, I know it's it's not the first time that he's made public comments in his career, um, but it, he does he has echoed that sentiment of like we wouldn't have been able to even do that if we did it today. But you can kind of look at other things like where yeah, South Park because like even ten years ago people were writing articles about how South Park appealed to this conservative base. But again, like I want to go back to the fact that it was like the nice thing about South Park was you could read into it what you wanted. You know, like I could watch South Park with my liberal girlfriend and she would find pretty much all the same things funny. And, and if there was any kind of like political bend to it, it kind of satisfied everybody in some way. Or if it, or if it was like if you were made fun of, like if, if somebody like you was mocked on South Park, it was like, it's almost like good job. You know, it's like I was talking about like when you used to fight with your friends as a kid, if they could say that right thing that's true and gets under your skin, it's almost like good job. You know, and South Park was good at that, where like if it did target you, it's like it was it usually had some subtlety to it and it was like, oh yeah, they're right. And it wasn't hateful. I mean that's the interesting thing about it is yeah, South Park was it never felt hateful. And then too, it's just, I mean, humor, it, like dealing with things through humor, of course, is always the, it's always what, uh, I mean, that, that to me is um, alchemy. You know, that to me is alchemy. That's like humor does something alchemically to an idea or a subject. And it, it makes the difference. And it, it's, it allows people, I mean, this is just cliche stuff that everybody says, but there's a reason why they say it, which is that, you know, you know, humor does give you access to certain truths or not, not even access to certain truths. It allows you to speak certain truths that you otherwise might not be able to. And it shows, well, I was talking recently about how, like, if you use sense of humor, even in a serious conversation, I mean, there's a time and a place as I, I say over and over again, but if you use a sense of humor in an otherwise very intense, serious situation, you're communicating that you have control. 
Because like if you can take a second to like throw a little bit of wit into something, even if it's stupid, because it doesn't have to be good. But if you can just like intentionally place humor in something, and yeah, you could come up with exceptions. Like, you ever heard of the Joker? Tons of sadistic people joke around while they're doing horrible things. Of course they do. You know, executioners laugh while they put the hang hangman's noose around someone's neck. You know, they're, of course. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm not saying that humor justifies horrible things. But you know what? In that situation, like the, the thing is, the sort of the sort of sad, the sadist who laughs, they actually just reinforce my point that it communicates control, and that's actually kind of the effect that a, a sadist has in a movie or in, I imagine in real life. But you know, I imagine that's the sort of a, or, or I mean, that is the sort of effect that a sadist laugh has. Is you, it's like I'm in control, and there's nothing you can do about it. And even that sort of like being in a fight and getting beaten up and laughing is that it's probably in Fight Club or something. But I mean, that's kind of a kind of a trope, even the idea of like the psycho who's getting beaten up, but is just laughing as he's getting his ass kicked. And that's kind of like a power move. That's also that also signifies that you have a, a sense of control. It's like you're beating the shit out of me, but I'm just laughing about it. And that always communicates that you're a psycho. I mean, I feel like that must happen in Fight Club, like Tyler Durden or something. I don't know. But it is an interesting effect. I, like, it just kind of, I had never thought about that in connection to the whole humor communicates that you're in control thing. I just realized now, yeah, like Fight Club, that sort of getting beaten up. I, don't, I can't even remember if that's actually in Fight Club, but it's that sort of idea. Like you can imagine Tyler Durden getting beaten up and laughing if it didn't actually happen. Just writing fan, Fight Club fan fiction. Um, I've only seen it once. I've never read the book. That's the best kind of fan fiction, where you've never you've you've given it only like a like a surface level look, like you've seen it once, and you write fan fiction about it. You've never read the book, but you write fan fiction. That'd be funny. But yeah, just like, I mean, the sadist, like that's the sadist is like doing an evil laugh. I'm not going to do one, but uh, I, need, I need to work on that. But yeah, they're communicating like I have control of this situation. Like the guy getting beaten up, the psycho who's getting beaten up and laughing his ass off about it. He's saying like, you're, you're destroying me, but I'm still in control of myself. And I mean, that's what I was saying about serious situations where like sometimes if you're grieving and you're talking to somebody by making a joke, you can kind of signal to them that like, hey, it's it's okay. Like, you don't have to worry about me. Or when someone does that to you, I know that I've experienced that where like somebody's been grieving, but they take a second to like make a joke and they might not even really mean it. But just the fact that they took a second to do that kind of, t it kind of signals to you like, hey, this person's okay. And so humor, like it's, it's a way of like remaining in, in control and to get back into the the dirt here, I don't think it's a coincidence that humor is often what gets targeted. It's it's what censors often target. I mean, you saw where the Taliban, one of the first people they killed after taking full control was some TikTok comedian who lived in Afghanistan. He was critical of the Taliban, but he was some sort of, he looked like an older guy, but they killed him. And uh, you can see where a lot of the controversies, even early on, like like I think it was 
when the culture war really started to flare up, you saw where it, it was comedy that was often targeted. Like you can't make jokes about that anymore. You know, even before people really went after entire populations, like, you know, before people were even like, before the idea of like really criticizing, you know, patriarchal Caucasian dominance, like before people were really targeting that, people were getting upset at jokes first. And that's interesting to me. But it's pretty obvious too, and it's dark. And I think part of it is that when people have humor, they have control over themselves. And like humor, like, like earnest laughter is one of the few things you can't fake. Like somehow, for some strange reason, I mean, it's not that strange, but you know, it is weird how like we develop fake laughs and I still do it all the time. Like I probably do it on the show. I probably do it talking to everybody I know, or it's just like, huh. You know, we, we, we develop fake laughter and like we, we do it voluntarily for some reason. I mean, even it's like, it's almost a way of saying like, like if, if somebody says something that is funny, but it's not enough to produce laughter or you just kind of want to humor them, obviously you'll kind of pretend to laugh. And it's a nice thing we do, but it is kind of funny because it's like they know it's fake and we know it's fake because like we know what a real laugh is. And that's always one of the worst feelings too, when you're having to fake laugh. Like there's a lot of other fake things that you have to do sometimes, but fake laughter seems to really, I don't know, it just feels like a self-betrayal. And, and it's like, and then, yeah, it's just that thing where it's like, I'm not even actually laughing. Um, but it's one of those things that like, yeah, you, you can't really control it. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, some people laugh more than others. Like, I wish I laughed more. You know, I'm at a point in my life where it's like, even though I do laugh, you know, of course, but it's like, I wish that I laughed more because it's, it feels so good, but, uh, everybody knows that. But then it's interesting that that gets targeted. Like the thing that makes you laugh is the thing that gets targeted and you're told like you shouldn't, cause it's not just, you shouldn't tell that joke. Part of all this is you shouldn't laugh at that. And you truly can't control laughter. You just can't. I mean, anybody who's heard a truly funny joke in a situation where you're not supposed to make an outburst, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's in movies, but it's, it really does feel that way. Like when you watch in some teen movie where somebody's not supposed to be laughing in class and they like snort, like that's a real experience, you know, and it really it is that cartoony sometimes. It's like, you really can't control yourself. And so it's like this, censorship and maybe just a better word for it is intimidation because you know censorship brings up like people want to talk about the legality of that word they want to talk about the first amendment things i don't care about and that don't inform my own views on that like my views on free speech aren't dependent on the first amendment it's not my league i'm not a, i'm not a, interpreting the law I feel like this is a much more central law to our human existence. I feel like this is a innate law. So it's like when someone wants to talk about the first amendment and you know, I mean, I understand that that is relevant when you talk about deplatforming. Like I understand that the law is relevant. Like we have to have some way of sorting it out when it comes to what corporations are allowed to do, what these online platforms are allowed to do. 
That's I, I totally understand that. Like when you're discussing whether Twitter can ban somebody or Facebook can can ban somebody, I totally understand why we have to use legal precedent for that and consider amending our laws or creating laws that you know acknowledge these new entities that are like publishers, but also sort of these general meeting places. Like you know it. You know I don't. You know I understand. We need the law for that, but I'm just talking about my basic principle here, not in any one specific context, just my general principle of free speech. And yeah, it doesn't depend on the law. It's something that I simply believe about everybody. You know, it, it pertains to everybody. Like, I don't look at what's going on in another country where free speech is even more restricted and say, well, it's okay that their free speech is even more restricted because their laws say they can do that. Like, I don't look at it that way. Like Canada has different free speech laws from the US and they're worse. And I don't look at that and say, well, it's okay. Like, like, yeah, I believe in free speech in Canada up to the point that the law allows. Like, no, I believe that Canadians deserve the exact same free speech as we do and everybody else does because I believe it's an innate law. But I want to get back to humor because, yeah, it is so strange to me, but familiar and, and, a, and such a recurring pattern that humor is targeted, comedy is targeted, and that it targets not just the person saying it, but the person hearing it. Because to chastise somebody for laughing at something, like earnestly laughing at something, that they find funny, even if it's an inconvenient time or place, that's just nasty and cruel. And even if they're laughing at your expense, like I think about teachers who couldn't stand their kids laughing behind their backs, and I had a couple of them. You know, no, none of it was like, it wasn't like the movie teacher. It wasn't a caricature, but it was like you, you would have, of course, like you have so many teachers growing up any number of them have ego issues. And there were always those teachers too, who was like, this was their first time having authority. This was their first time having people listen to them. You know, so you had teachers like that and some of those had egos. And, uh, you know, if the idea that kids are laughing at their expense or something like their ego is so fragile that they'll punish you or come after you. And it's like, even if somebody is laughing at your expense, your ego should be strong enough or soft enough, whichever you prefer, maybe both, strong and soft. That's, that's how I like my ego. But your, your ego should be resilient enough, there we go, to handle that. Like to where like if kids are laughing at you in your classroom, yeah, if it's truly disruptive, do something about it. Like at some point you got to stop laughing. You know, you know, you know what I mean? It's not like just just let them laugh as much as they want. But I would say, like, if you if you catch a kid fake laughing at your expense, punish them. <laughs> if you catch a kid fake laughing, because that's the problem is a lot of times when someone laughs at your expense, it's not even infuriating that somebody insulted you or something embarrassing happened to you. It's insulting when you can hear that somebody is fake laughing just to like try to humiliate you further. Like if you fall and you hear somebody just belly laughing, it's like, yeah, that's fun for everybody. I fell and 
you know, hopefully I'm not hurt, but I fell and it's, I totally understand laughing at that. That's slapstick. But sometimes someone will be like, ha, 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 ha. And you're like, you're, you're fake laughing. And that, that's what infuriates me. You know, but a, a good natural laugh, you know, yeah, you can't have it going on all the time. Like you can't have people laughing throughout church. Like even if something is funny, I totally get it. Okay. I'm not, I'm not a laugh absolutist, but it's so sick to me that anybody would on a cultural level, on a political level, try to intimidate and enforce this idea that like, you can't laugh at the things that you find genuinely funny. Because the things that are genuinely funny are the things that are at the fringes. You know, because you can look at like comedy, for example, like in the same way that when people go back and they watch old comedies, even old stand-up, there's something kind of hokey about it. And part of that is because you've grown up seeing parodies of that. Like I realized that at one point where I was like, oh yeah, you know, the reason why like when I watch some old entertainer, while it, while it does come across hokey on its own, one of the reasons it seems extra hokey is because I've seen Bugs Bunny do that or something. I've seen like Looney Tunes characters do that a million times, like vaudeville or something. You know, it's like the re that's one of the reasons it seems so hokey is because like not only has it just been part of our culture. I mean, I almost think of that stuff. It's like the center of a tree, like the way that like when you cut a tree, how you see all the different rings and a really old tree, you know, just goes back further and further to the, uh, to the center. It goes in further and further to the center. And I mean, I think of culture and comedy that way, like when it's not disrupted, especially like just looking at the U.S., like you just think about comedy in the U.S., humor, but speci specifically like comedy in entertainment. Like, let's go with stand up comedy. Let's go with comedy movies, TV shows. And the way I look at older comedy is it's like further in it. It's, those are like rings that are further in on the tree. And they're not the they don't make the tree now, like. When you look at a tree, like you're walking through the woods, you're walking through the woods and you see a tree, like you're looking at the outer bark and, you have, and you're like, that's the tree. You're not thinking about the inner circles. You see the crust, you see like what's on the outside. And you think of that as the tree. And I mean, I think that's kind of how it is with like comedy, for example, where it's like the stuff that is the stuff that you're seeing right now, there's a good chance it's going to be the funniest. Not, not necessarily an entertainment, because what we're seeing now is very interesting, because the stuff that to me is the funniest is the stuff that is on the fringes, but that has nothing to do with what's in the mainstream, in comedy, in, I mean, a little bit. I mean, stand-up comedy is different, because, I mean, they're independent contractors, and even if they work for somebody, like, even if they have to, even if they kind of, you know, even if they're fairly safe... And they're also, they also do movies and that kind of thing. You see a lot more resistance in stand-up comedy for obvious reasons than you do in movies and TV, comedic movies and TV and like late night TV. So we can see that like maybe at some point the outer bark, like during the days of Johnny Carson, you know, maybe during those days it was like that was the outer bark. Late night TV, sitcoms, they all had their day. But it's like now, it's like the outer bark today is, are not sitcoms. They're not like Stephen Colbert and late night TV. It's the people. And that's like the amazing thing about the internet. And especially as people start being able to, basically as people seize the means of production and start being able to make their own videos and their own entertainment, that became the outer bark.
And I feel like that's where you're going to find the funny stuff. But that's heavily targeted now. And, you know, you watch late night TV and, you know, I don't, you know, I, I'm all about, um, I'm all about like letting everybody have their own sense of humor. Like, just like I don't want somebody to tell me what to find funny. Like, I will never tell somebody else what to find funny. I'm sure there's somebody out there who watches Jimmy Fallon, who watches Jimmy Kimmel and uh, Stephen Colbert. I'm sure there's somebody who watches that. I mean, a lot of people. There's, there's a lot of people who watch that, and I'm sure they genuinely laugh. And, you know, I know those guys are in theory trying to be funny, but I'm not even sure of that anymore. Like, I sometimes question, I'll see things with those guys in them, and I'm just like, are they actually even trying to be funny anymore? Because, I mean, I think trying to be funny means, like, genuinely wanting, like, like genuinely offering something funny for people to laugh at, and I can't even really understand what those guys are doing anymore. Maybe it's all in my head, I don't know, but it, it's definitely not relevant, and I, and I think that the people have responded accordingly. And I mean, there's a reason why people pursue the fringes. Because, like, you can look back at the old rings and be like, oh, it's cool. Because, I mean, people do that a lot with George Carlin, like, where you'll hear people revisit George Carlin, or I'll talk to people I know who, like, rewatched a George Carlin special. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, no, it's amazing. Like, so much of what he said then is relevant today. But I wonder, like, how much of how much of that was like belly laughs? Like, how much of that was like, oh my, you know, I can't believe he said that. Like, you know his routines, and he's really funny, and it's like a George Carlin comedy special. It's like music, you know. Like he he gets all of the parts perfect. Like his voice is perfect. Like George George Carlin, you know, I I've been a fan of him for a long time, you know. But still, it's one of those things where, like, when I rewatch him. It does make me laugh, but it's also more one of those things where it's like there's a certain comfort to it, maybe. Whereas, it, you know, it takes something I feel like new coming out today to like really rip me open. It has to be something that catches me by complete surprise, which is the same reason, you know, you can't just laugh at the same joke over and over again. Yeah, you can. Maybe there's a joke that's so funny you can hear it over and over again. But everything has that like... You know, humor has massive diminishing returns. You know, everything does. Like, if you eat too much, diminishing return. Like, you know, if you if you eat a bag of popcorn and then, like, eat two more bags of popcorn, the third bag of popcorn is going to be significantly less enjoyable than that first one. I mean, it's built into your body. Like, you know, sex and masturbation, the more you do it, the less pleasurable it is. You have to, like, take a break, you know not do it too often. It's like built into your biology even to have those diminishing returns when it comes to this thing that's pleasurable. And, uh, you know, it's true with music. Like you, I mean, that's the best of all. Like you find a new song you really like and you play it over, like when you're a teenager, for example, like, cause you don't really know better at the time. When you're a teenager, when you're growing up, you might not know better. Like you don't, you're not as disciplined and you, you don't know like how quickly you can ruin a song. Like you don't know how quickly you can like ruin something for yourself. <laughs> and, and so like when you're growing up, it's like you'll, you'll, oh, I heard this song on the radio and you buy the album and you just play that song over and over again and you hate it. It's like you can never hear it again in some cases, you know, or you have to wait. It's, it's the law of diminishing returns again, where it's like the more you play that song, the more you're going to hate it.
the less enjoyable it's going to be. But maybe if you revisit and revisit it in a year, you're going to love it again. You know, it's, it's that where it's like, you need to recharge, but humor, I think is, it might be the steepest. Like, I really believe humor is the steepest of all where like, once you have that like raw laughter, like when something just rips that laughter out of you, it's almost impossible to recreate that. Like if it's in the moment, you can do that. Like, you know, I remember like Jerry Springer, too hot for TV. Like I was staying the night at my friend's house and his parents took us to Blockbuster and we rented Jerry Springer, too hot for TV. And like, God bless his parents. Like actually he and I were just talking about it earlier tonight. Like we also used to steal their tequila and, uh, <laughs> Never got called out on it. You know, it, it was expensive tequila too. Like there were a couple nights when we were pretty young, like young teenager, eh, like mid, mid teenagers where we stole their tequila. But anyway, we rented Jerry Springer too hot for TV. And we were watching that. And there, there's a scene where a guy, like he just keeps rocking back and forth in his chair. He has a mullet and a mustache and he's, he's like yelling about something. And I think there, and he, the, it was even funnier too because there's another part where like he's arguing with somebody like he's arguing with maybe his wife or his girlfriend or somebody in his life and he has a problem like either she's cheating on him with this other guy you know it's a typical jerry springer scenario but like they they ask her like at one point jerry springer's like well who is this other man or like or so you're involved with like this man right and then the redneck guy goes to a little dickhead I think that's what I think he, Jerry Springer's like, and, and you're married, and she and he goes to a little dickhead, and we just thought that was so funny. But the really funny part was he's rocking back and forth in his chair during this argument, and then he just falls off the back, like the chair tumbles off the back of the stage, and we were just dying of laughter and just rewinding that over and over again, like keeping the high alive. It's like we're hit, we're hitting that crack pipe over and over again in that moment. But if we watch it again, if we, you know, if we watch it after that window of time where we're dying of laughter, if we were to watch it again an hour later, there's no way we're going to laugh as hard. You know, we already got really high off of it that first time. And then we like, we hit the crack rock like three times in succession, like rewinding it. But it's like, if we smoked a crack rock in an hour, it's not going to get us as high. I've never smoked crack, but you know, but you know, you know how it works. Um, so it's that sort of thing, but there is this really steep, like, like after that initial moment where you're dying of laughter, it's almost impossible to recreate that. Some things do, some things manage to, like, I think of certain jokes, like certain things, my friend, not even jokes, but just there's, there are some comments I, my friends have made, especially where, uh, you just remember them forever. And every once in a while, your brain just goes to that comment and you just, you can't help but laugh. And that's why it's so sick though. You know, that's why targeting people for what they find funny adds a whole other sick dimension that doesn't really get mentioned. You know, the focus lately is much more on like the creators. Like there's a lot more scrutiny on, you know, publishers, creators, people who actually produce material. There's a lot of scrutiny on them. They're the people who face a lot of the repercussions. But the whole other side of it, and I think this is why normal people are so upset. It's not just that normal people are like, why do you keep, why do you keep intimidating and censoring these people that I like who are saying interesting things, if nothing else? Even if I don't like them, they're saying interesting things. 
And interest is a lot like humor, where it's like you can't choose what to be interested in. I was talking about that a couple of weeks ago. You can't choose what you're interested in. Like, there's no way to force that on somebody. Like, you can instill discipline in a kid, and they will study something they're not interested in, but you can't manufacture interest. Like, something that just captivates you. Like, when you get a book and you just can't stop reading it, you know, you're just like, wow, I, I, I got... I got hooked into something and it's always good. You know, even if it's dark, even if it's weird, just the fact that something captivates you, it's much like humor in that way where it's involuntary. And if you could choose what to be genuinely interested in, you would, but you can't. And maybe someone's cracked the code and maybe there's somebody who's like, all you have to do is do this, this, and this. Some phantom has cracked the code. All you have to do is do this, 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 and you'll, you'll immediately be sucked into anything. Maybe drugs do that for some people. They make things interesting that otherwise weren't. So it's similar to humor in the sense that like you're targeting people's innate interest and sense of humor, things that aren't changeable. You know, you can brainwash people. You can if you tell someone something isn't funny over and over again and they they believe it, you know, maybe maybe that works, but it's like as far as just what somebody reacts to. And the focus is often on the people who create material that people follow, but it's not just that, that fans, for example, are fed up with people they like or people they are interested in being, or people who make them laugh, being targeted. It's that the audience is targeted too, because the audience is being told, you shouldn't find that funny. He shouldn't be saying that, and you shouldn't find it funny. And that's especially insulting because it's one thing if you're talking about a performer because you think about stand-up comedy where it's repetition like i didn't know that as a kid i didn't follow stand-up comedy but i never really thought about whether it was rehearsed or pre-written you know part of me just i never thought hard enough about it one way or another but i didn't really you know i, I thought of it as something you just go up there and do like i thought i thought these guys just went up there and made it up as they went along i go he's really funny so he just goes up there and talks about things, which is what they do. But I didn't realize that it was a very tightly rehearsed routine. And that makes me like it less. You know, it shouldn't, because it's like if you just see it for the first time, that's one thing. You know, it's not like you have to watch them do it over and over again. And it's, it's, an, it's like George Carlin. Like I said, it's like a song. Like when you watch George Carlin, like even if it doesn't make you like laugh out loud like it used to, you can still look at it and be like, you know, he's still making great points. He's still funny, and it's kind of like a song that you're listening to because he's he he is an artist. And uh, you know, I don't know, that, I don't know. It's just a weird thing where like I realized that oh yeah, stand up comedy is is very rehearsed. They they when they go on tour, they don't talk about different things every night. You know, that'd be crazy, honestly, when you think about it. They but they have a routine they do, and maybe and they improvise a little bit. I'm not I'm not trying to say they don't you know, go around in different directions. I'm not saying it's all just memorizing a script at all. But it's one thing to target them because it's like they're making a choice to repeat something that you don't like. They've written it. They're, they're making money off of it. They're performing it as they should be allowed to do. But I'm just saying I understand the pressure. I understand if you're going to pressure anybody, if you're going to be an authoritarian prick and, and pressure anybody, you should pressure the people who rehearse it and say it over and over again. But the fact that somebody laughs at that, and that's not acceptable. 
that's a whole other side of it, and it doesn't come up in the conversation very often. You know, it's like, oh, you should be ashamed that you find that funny. And there are exceptions. Like, even if something funny happens at somebody's grandma's funeral and you're a guest, if you're going to be the only person laughing, you probably do it, you leave, go to the bathroom, do something. Pretend you're crying. Don't laugh. But then you hear about, like, things, funny things happening at funerals where everybody busts open laughing, like everybody there. So, you know, you never really know. But other than that, like the idea, like, yeah, there's a time and a place to laugh, of course. Like there's, or rather there are more like there are exceptions where you shouldn't laugh. But I don't know, the, the, the targeting of people's tastes is a huge part of this. The idea of saying that you, this thing that you are interested in, this thing that you gravitate toward, you're not allowed to do that. So that's where a lot of the outrage comes from, from just ordinary people. It's not just the people, the celebrities and different people that they like getting this treatment. It's the fact that they themselves are subjected to it, and they're subjected to it now everywhere they go. Almost everywhere. So it's not just that like you shouldn't laugh at this thing that you're watching or you're hearing. It's that like if you're in a, a certain, if you're hanging out with friends, you got to even worry about what you say or what you laugh at. And it's not, that's a truly unhealthy environment. And it's unhealthy because we know laughing is so healthy. And it's like, and like, like what's the worst case scenario to me? Like, let's say a, somebody makes a joke that is highly offensive and a neo-Nazi finds it funny. The worst possible person you can imagine finds it funny. Is that a problem? Like, is it an actual problem if part of an audience is an undesirable person? It's like, oh, we're not gonna we're not gonna let Motorhead play this show. Because we know that a minority group of criminal bikers sometimes go to motorhead shows. I mean, I feel like it's sort of the same logic where it's like, because a certain unsavory type is also interested in this, and we don't want those people laughing at anything or enjoying anything or using it as, or interpreting it. Like, I mean, you think about South Park where it's like, I bet you a diehard white supremacist could watch South Park and find something in it that lines up with his cause or that he can twist or, or interpret to be in line with his cause. But you know what? Like the same is true for the far left. The same is true for, you know, somebody who would, who would consider themselves anarchists even. You know, they could watch South Park and find something that is relevant to their cause. They could find some sort of message, some sort of criticism of something that is relevant to them. And I know I I know that to be true. It, it's it always had a broad range of fans. But it's like are you going to worry because it does speak to a certain unsavory type too? Does that mean that everybody who enjoys it is unsavory?
or, or unsavory in the same way? And does that mean that it's catering to them? Does that mean that that's their audience? Do, you, know, you know what I mean? Like you get into these sort of questions. And then there's the, the idea that it's contributing harm or, or it's somehow fueling momentum or, or it's fueling some sort of movement that has a, some sort of horrible goal. And that's just, it's a similar form of what I was just talking about. Like because a certain group, even if they're powerful or even if they are a threat, let's even go with the reality. Let's say a threatening, a highly threatening, organized, potentially influential group finds value in something. Is that reason to ban it? Is that reason to believe it was made for them? I don't understand that logic. And then the other idea is that it could potentially influence people in that direction. If they laugh at that, well, that'll be a gateway. Who knows what they'll laugh at next? So that gateway drug idea, which it's funny that people shut that down so heavily, like since we're dealing with leftist intimidation and censorship here, it's interesting that they like, you know, and I always liked this. This is something that I always agreed with, which is like, you know, demonizing marijuana as a gateway drug when the reality is that if marijuana was truly a gateway drug, a lot more people would have tried and potentially become addicted to harder drugs. Because the number of kids I knew who tried weed or smoked weed regularly even, who never really delved into anything more serious, or at least not significantly, like didn't end up addicts, didn't end up hard drug users. You know, it's just anecdotally false, and I'm sure the statistics back that up too. So like rejecting the gateway drug argument for the criminalization of marijuana, you know, it was a bullshit argument. Is there something to it? Like most people who do end up with, it's like one of those things where the people who do end up with hard drug addictions, yeah, they often started with marijuana or marijuana was early on as was alcohol, you know, alcohol. That was a point people used to make too. Like back in the day, like it's, it's good to remember the old slogans, like especially now that weed is becoming increasingly legal, you don't, you're not going to hear them as much anymore. But one of them was alcohol's a gateway drug. Marijuana proponents used to always say that alcohol's a gateway drug. It's true though. It was a good point. I just have to say it that way. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it's true. It's like if marijuana is a gateway drug, what's alcohol? Like an even bigger gateway drug to other things, or just you know, alcohol dependency, addiction. Even if, even if you don't try anything else. Um, so the gateway drug idea, like the left always rejected that. The left always had strong, strong arguments against the gateway drug idea. So it's weird to see that the left now supports this idea that there are gateway ideas, which there are. Like most people who got into some sort of fringe radical belief started somewhere. Like they had a gateway. But that doesn't mean the idea itself is a gateway for everybody. Yeah, some heroin addicts who overdose and die, some of them started with weed. Maybe all of them did. 
almost all of them probably started with weed. But that doesn't mean that all weed users became heroin addicts who overdosed. I'd say it's the same for ideas. Where somebody started somewhere. Okay, maybe some Aryan Brotherhood member. I mean, I think we could use other examples than just, you know, white supremacists. But let's say some guy, he's a member of the Aryan Brotherhood in prison. And even though that group, it's politics are kind of weird. But um, let's just say a guy joined a white supremacist gang. He's a criminal. You know, maybe it all started because he heard an offensive joke and he laughed at it. I'm sure there was a lot more going on than that. But still, let's say it did start there for him. Does that mean that everybody who heard that offensive joke followed his path or became a threat or even enabled it? Or influenced it because we get into these immeasurables and that's what's so difficult about many of these things and as much as I don't believe that everything needs to be perfectly measured and you can go off intuition to some degree I do believe if you are going to institutionalize ideas there has to be something measurable to them and we're seeing a trend away from that where we're seeing institutionalized ideas that are largely based on anecdote and intuition. And one of those is that ideas are gateway drugs, which I would agree some extreme cases started somewhere. But the idea that gateway ideas not just lead people down there or inevitably lead people down there, but that they enable extremely bad behavior. In some cases, I think they're a pressure release, you know? I think there are strong arguments that being able to express more is a pressure release. Because you can feel the tension in a climate like this, and I don't even think it's as bad as it could potentially get. Like, I'm not trying to even, I guess, and this is, you know, this isn't very new to me. We've seen a ramp up, but it's like this has been, things have been traveling this way for years. I'm not entirely shocked. Um, But, you know, the pressure release idea, you know, the idea it actually relieves some amount of tension to be able to say things that are inappropriate. And then the funny thing about that is arguing that comes from like a position of, or, or arguing that like makes it appear that you're coming from a position of like, I want us to be able to say anything and everything because I want to say anything and everything. Or I even want to hear somebody say anything and everything. You know, that's an assumption in that too. That if you're making that argument, it's because you're personally invested in some way. And I am personally invested in free speech, but I'm not personally invested in everything that it has to offer. I'm not even against people making arguments against free speech. I'm not against that at all. I think people should be allowed to make arguments against free speech. And if I were to try to demonize that or say that that needs to be shut down, well, all of a sudden, I no longer believe in free speech. So I have to allow that. And I want to because I want to hear what they have to say. I'm genuinely interested in a philosophical argument. I'm genuinely interested in a perspective that makes overt arguments against free speech. So I would not want to shut that down. What I don't want is for somebody with that outlook to try to intimidate, coerce, or take control and impose that. 
And that's the risk you run. I mean, that's the risk of free speech. But it's like someone will, if you don't have free speech, then that's already happening. <laughs> that's the funny part. Is it's, is it's like, the worry is that if we have free speech, somebody will use that to impose their will. But if we don't have free speech, that is evidence that somebody is imposing their will. So it's just funny in that way that that gets lost. It's like it's completely lost. I mean, it's, it seems like most free speech proponents understand that. But it gets definitely gets lost in the maze, as many other things do. But, um, yeah, going back to that 20 years ago period, you know, 15, 20 years ago, what was so significant about that and why I kind of see it as a sort of sweet spot was the fact that you had these two different, there was a culture war going on. You know, it's not the current culture war, maybe, but there was a culture war going on. And if you stood for free speech and free expression, it really put you on a dual front. Where anything you could potentially say or do would either offend, you know, the Christian evangelical neocon power base, or it would offend, you know, the rising sort of post-60s, like the early shades of the new left, but it was what people called political correctness. You either offended cultural political correctness or you offended this largely religious conservative base. And so, you know, anything you said could potentially offend either one of them, both of them. But what's interesting about that is it didn't seem, the punishments didn't seem as significant. There were punishments. There were people attempting to shut people down, you know, absolutely. That was going on, but not nearly to the extent. And I think part of that is just that we have so many more ways to express ourselves now. Because like at the time, it was like, yeah, we're going to prevent Walmart from uh, selling their CD. Or if Walmart does sell it, it's got to have a, a it's got to be a clean version. It's got to be the clean version. You know, it's like that was the sort of approach, which was very in, they were intimidating people. They were imposing their will on people and they had political power. But I think the fact that you had two completely opposed groups looking to impose their will, they kind of neutralized each other in a way. You know, I think the culture was still split enough to where those two factions kind of neutralized each other a little bit. So I think there were fewer opportunities to receive flack. Like, like, the, like I think the difference is like the average citizen wasn't going to lose their job because they weren't posting something online. They didn't get caught liking the wrong tweet, which has happened. People have lost their jobs because somebody found their Twitter account and they liked the wrong tweet. So a difference then too is that it's like there were people like the Dixie Chicks, you know, there are all sorts of artists who were getting... People were attempting to censor them or at least intimidate them, intimidate ideas they represented. That was going on, but it was by different groups and those groups, none of those groups dominated the space. There's a word, space. And, uh, you know, so I think that gave, I think that gave everybody a little more wiggle room, honestly. 
And then everybody communicated in far more decentralized ways. And communication was a lot more private too. And people weren't reliant on technology as much. A lot of what you said to the people you know, everything you said to the people you know, up to a certain point was through the phone, talking over voice or in person. You know, maybe you started sending emails and that kind of thing, but there wasn't even any platform for just expressing your views. Like unless you were somebody who built a website or had a blog, you know, like it wasn't easy to just make an account and express your views. And it was even more difficult for like everybody, you know, and, and strangers everywhere else to see what you were saying. So it's like there was less people were looking at each other less. They were less aware of what other people felt or how other people expressed themselves in private. And so we saw people got heavily exposed. We as people, as civilians have been heavily exposed and we've voluntarily gone into it. And this thing that we voluntarily entered now feels somehow essential. For communication, if nothing else. And while that's happening, people themselves are taking things into their own hands and being like, you know what? I'm going to make my own show. I'm going to make my own videos. I don't have to appeal to some sort of board. Nobody has to like my idea. There's no, no executive has to approve this or say anything about it. And so the people seize the means of production in that way. And it turns out the people are a lot funnier. People who otherwise never would have, I mean, people who don't even have any charisma can type things or make things on their computer. Like they don't even involve them, just ideas. And those can end up far funnier than anything that mainstream entertainment has to offer. And that's also the biggest threat to mainstream entertainment, which I think is why it has enabled, you know, I mean, I, I can accuse people of enabling too, but that's why I think the ma that mainstream entertainment has enabled much of this censorship because they've had a significant drop in interest, in control, but that's reflected in the drop of quality that they've had. They don't like the mainstream entertainment industry doesn't like the fact that it's no longer the outer bark. They can't stand it. And even though they still make money and have a certain status, they hate not being the outer bark. And so they think by shutting all that down or letting other interest groups impose their will, it'll, it'll give them a little longer on the outside, but it's already over. You can't go back now. And a lot of people see these people for who they are. And it's interesting, like Rose McGowan, here's some celebrity talk, but Rose, I was always a Rose McGowan fan. And speaking of Scream the other day, that was my introduction to her. That was the first time I ever saw Rose McGowan in, in anything. And she stood out. You know, I think she was blonde in that. She was very hot. But I, I just, I was always a fan of her and like, I was, I never listened to Marilyn Manson or anything, but I thought it was cool. She was dating him. Like I just, and I didn't follow her career. You know, I saw her in other things, but I just always thought she seemed like a cool celebrity. She had that vibe. Like she was kind of weird. She seemed authentically weird. Like even dating Marilyn Manson and wearing like see-through dresses, she still seemed legitimate to me in some way. And then recently, like she's, she's been having this 
I wouldn't call it, I'm not even going to call it a meltdown or anything. I mean, that's how it's being painted. I don't know her. Um, I, I don't know Rose McGowan. Be cool if I did. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I don't know why, I don't know why that was so funny to me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, uh, now it's being painted as this kind of meltdown because she came out and she attacked Oprah. Like she's made comments because she was part of the whole Me Too thing, exposing all of these. I mean, again, the people that, you know, the new media, the new content has been able to evade, like the Harvey Weinsteins and people like that. These corrupt, lecherous, greedy, dominant executives and their entire industry. You know, people have been able to circumvent that to a large degree. And, you know, Rose McGowan came out against those people. I don't even remember exactly her story. I think she also came out with some stuff about Marilyn Manson recently. He, it turns out he's just as, he, he's far weirder than his like superficial public character even is, you know, he's far darker actually from what has come out. I think she was part of that. I think she came out and said some things about him. So she's been part of this like call out culture thing, which I have mixed feelings on. I think it can do good. Like I'm actually, you know, somebody who felt that the celebrity side of me too. And a lot of it, like, I think there were a lot of aspects of me too. I know that a lot of people would agree and a lot of other people would disagree. I know that people I'm friends with would disagree, but I, I do feel that me too, up to a certain point had a net positive, you know, when it started going after just anybody and everybody for the smallest things, it'd be one thing to address it, but to make it public, like when, you know, off color jokes, but that, that's kind of that whole gateway thing. It's like, Oh, you know, one time so-and-so told me nice skirt and it made me uncomfortable. I think that's valid to feel uncomfortable. And I think it's a good thing that we discourage that or, or should discourage it. But it's like to bundle that in with everything else. I don't know about that. Like it, it does follow that kind of gateway thing. And maybe it is a gateway. I don't know. But but anyway, like I am somebody who, I mean, somebody would probably be mad at me saying that, but it's just, and here I am saying that I think me too actually had a lot of benefit in some ways up to a point. What do you mean up to a point? Well, you know, up to a point, that phantom, that phantom who doesn't like my nuanced opinion on me too. But Rose McGowan was a part of that. And like I said, I, I do have mixed feelings on it, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So, but I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't even, it's not even relevant to this, just that she's been part what I, the only reason I bring it up is she's been part of these public controversies for a while. She definitely gives off crazy vibes, but she always has, you know, that's always kind of been part of her. And I mean, as the world's gotten crazier, maybe she's gotten crazier and I'm, I don't use crazy as a pejorative. Crazy, like if you've seen the movie Donnie Brasco, like when they talk about the, the term forget about it, the character Lefty explains how like forget about it means anything. Like if something good happens, forget about it. If something bad happens, forget about it. If it's indifference, hey, forget about it. You know, it's it, forget about it can be used in any context. That's kind of how I am with the word crazy, where I'm like, if somebody tells me good news, I'm like, that's crazy. It's horrible news. That, oh, that's crazy. I can pretty much use it however. So when I say that Rose McGowan seems crazy, I just mean chaotic, really. She's behaved in unexpected ways. Not that she's clinically insane 
or diagnosable. She might be. She may. I wouldn't surprise me if she's even advocated for mental health. She kind of. I feel like maybe I heard about that at some point, but. But it's one of those things. So when I say she's gotten crazier, I just mean she's she's kind of brought some chaos into the public. You know, she's been unpredictable, which I like. But recently she came out like saying, like she's talking about lizard people. She's talking, here I am being like, well, you know, I, I, I don't even mean she's truly insane. And then I'm like, yeah, then she started talking about lizard people. But no, she's, I don't, it's hard to even know. Because I mean, like, if I were to say that, like, that's not my thing. Like conspiracy theory jokes aren't my thing. Like, oh, it's all lizard people. And I, and obviously I don't actually, I'm not a, a, liz, a lizard people conspiracy theorist in earnest either. So I just have no business talking about lizard people. But if I were to say that as a joke and somebody didn't know, you know, if somebody just didn't know me well enough, didn't actually listen to me, they might be like, oh, he lost his mind. So I don't want to assume that Rose McGowan talking about lizard people, I don't want to assume it's 100% genuine. But I don't want to assume it's not either because I don't really know. But, you know, I will, you know, I have paid a little bit of attention to what she's been saying. She's saying like Oprah basically is a horrible person. I mean, we've been in that phase for a while where it's like Ellen DeGeneres is a horrible person. Like these, the biggest, most famous women, in addition to some of the men. But, uh, you know, they've been targeted and it's been like, oh, their, their public face isn't who they really are, which is not a shock. And I don't even know what the details were. I'm not even sure what she said about Oprah, just that that itself is big, that a very famous celebrity is targeting her because everybody loves her, apparently. I don't know anything about Oprah. I've never paid attention. Like, Oprah to me is kind of like the Beatles or something where it's like, my instinct is to be like, I don't like that. But I don't want to be a Beatles hater. And I don't want to be an Oprah hater because it seems too easy to like make that a part of your personality. To be like somebody who's like, oh, the Beatles suck. Everybody's stupid, dude. The Beatles sexually, dude. I, I found out this amazing fact. The Beatles actually suck, and everybody's wrong. You know, I don't want to be that guy ever. I just don't pay attention to the Beatles. That's how I feel about Oprah too. It's like she's so famous. She's obviously not for me. <laughs> like Oprah is obviously not for me. Yeah, dude, <laughs> I just, I didn't, I wasn't interested in anything. You know, talking about like being interested in something, like how you can't control what you're interested in. I could never be interested in Oprah. No, you know what? I do have one interest. I, there was one time where I was interested in Oprah. When I was a little kid, my mom and I would go into Seattle sometimes to go shopping and things. It was, you know, maybe a 15 minute drive, maybe across the bridge. So we'd go to Seattle sometimes. We'd just, you know, Seattle had cool stores. It was always an experience going into the city. And there was a fried chicken place. I'm sure it's still there called Ezel's. It's kind of famous in the area. I don't know. I don't know where they exist. I don't know if it's a one-off. If it's just a, if it's like Dick's Drive-In where it's just like the Seattle phenomenon. I have no clue, but it's a big deal. People love Ezel's fried chicken. And my mom took me there and... It was insane because I was a, a little kid. I was, I, I mean, I'm talking like five years old and plastered all over the walls, but built into the walls. Like, you know, when an image, like almost like if you go into a subway, like a subway uh, sandwich shop and like there are photographs, but they're part of the wall. Like they're not framed. They're not posters. It's like they're, I don't know what, like they're just printed onto the wall. 
And uh, it was like that. They had that. But it was all these like aerial photographs of Oprah running a marathon. Because apparently she ran a marathon or did some sort of run. Like it was a big deal, I think, at the time. Like Oprah's running. <laughs> Oprah's running a marathon. <laughs> Read all about it. Uh, it was a big deal at the time, though. And I guess that she had had Ezel's chicken flown into her after the marathon, I think it was. Like, like she treated herself after the marathon by having Ezel's chicken flown into her. And so what is Ezel's going to do? We're going to put pictures of Oprah running a marathon on the walls of our restaurant. And so that's that was the one time that I was interested in Oprah. Because I was looking at the walls. Like, I still actually vividly remember it. Because, like, looking back, like, you know, some of your memories get very faint from that age. But I look back and I can distinctly remember sitting there eating fried chicken, just like staring at the walls and just being like, what the heck? And I kind of knew who Oprah was because, you know, my mom, my mom was an Oprah fan and she was everywhere. Even then, you know, even like 1990, I feel like you just knew who she was. I don't know when she got famous, but it was just the funniest thing because I'm just like sitting there. I was like, who? Like there's aerial photos of this race and there's Oprah running. So there was the one time I was interested in Oprah. After that, I just, I wouldn't, or no, no, you know what? There's two, because when Tom Cruise was on there, when Tom Cruise, again, they, people were like saying he was having a meltdown. I don't see it, because I'm a Tom Cruise fan, just as a person. Like, he's another example. Like, for the same reason that I like that Rose McGowan brings an element of chaos, Tom Cruise brings chaos, but it's not because he's chaotic. Like, he's the opposite. Like, Tom Cruise, like, they say he's scarily, they say he's like Patrick Bateman or something, where he's, like, ultra cold. He's, like, very nice, but he's ultra cold and clinical. Like, he's almost like a robot going through the motions of being a human. And I don't even understand the criticisms of him. Like, I understand the story. I understand he he is part of a cult. I understand that when he was married to his last wife, how, or whatever it was, how, like, she was highly restricted and maybe that was psychologically abusive i get all that but i mean all this started even before that where like people were targeting him for basically going off script and challenging psychiatry which i think was an interesting statement to make at the time and the guy who challenged him on it the guy who like tried to humiliate him basically not not humiliate him but just the guy who was like you're crazy turned out to have like a button in his office like he got me too Matt Lauer, he got me too. I don't know what the true story was or anything, but the story that was out there at the time was that like he, in his office, he had a button that would like automatically lock the door so that he could lock women in there with him or something. I don't know. Not my story, but I like that he ended up being, people ended up saying he's some kind of scumbag. Meanwhile, Tom Cruise was like, can you believe he doesn't believe in medication? Can you believe he doesn't believe in the pharmaceutical industry? Can you believe that he thinks that a certain, at least a certain aspect of psychiatry is manipulative? You know, can you believe that he's saying these things? And I, I feel like that was, even though he didn't get canceled for that then, which speaks to that climate that I'm talking about from that period. Like, it kind of speaks to that climate where, like, what, if Tom Cruise were to say, here's another example. Like if Tom Cruise were to say those things today, there would be newspaper articles in mass saying like Tom Cruise promotes pseudoscience, misinformation. Tom Cruise is spreading misinformation. You know, we would be hearing that. But at the time it was just like, he's just throwing, you know, for being such a, 
silver bullet. You know, he's he's he is this very like he comes across like a laser. I guess that's what I mean. Tom Cruise just seems like a human laser. But yet, like, everyone was just losing their minds over the fact that, like, he believes things we don't believe. So I appreciate him. I, I mean, I was always a fan. Like, going back to The Outsiders, you know, the movie The Outsiders, one of my favorite books and movies, he plays just a, a background character. But, you know, going back to watching that as a kid, you know, I, I wouldn't even say I followed any of his other movies. It's kind of like Rose McGowan, where it wasn't like I was a fan because I'm not even a movie guy. So it's not like I was a fan of her movies that much or even his movies or anything. I, I did see some of them and that kind of thing. But I think I just like what they've represented in the culture. But the interesting thing is, is, is I, I saw this video of Rose McGowan talking about it. And I expected her to seem extremely unhinged. But her eyes just looked sort of sleepy and her tone of voice didn't raise any flags with me, which is interesting because like I see all these videos of people talking these days, especially candid videos where someone's like telling you to do something. I'll occasionally see those where somebody's like preaching about some political issue. They're ranting about some political issue. I'll see these videos like that. And I've noticed this phenomenon more and more in recent years and definitely in the last year and a half where they do this thing with their eyes where the eyes are like bugging out and you can see the white above their, is it your uh, cornea? Like whatever the outer part of your eye is. Like basically like you can see the white above their eye, their pupil. I don't know if I'm explaining this right. Like normally you see that white on the bottom and your eyelids cover the top of your eye, but it's like they, they pull their eye, when they're talking, they pull their eyelids so far back that you can see the white like at the top of their eye. And it's, it's funny, too, because there are old books about psychopathy that have diagrams that show, <laughs> that show what a psychopath's eyes look like. And maybe, this is, maybe they're outdated. But it would draw their eyes that way. It would draw a psychopath's eyes that way as being like bulging out and you could see the white at the top of their eye, which is not a normal way to look at people. Like unless you're looking down at somebody who's like laying on the ground, they shouldn't be able to see that and your eyes shouldn't be doing that. If you're looking at someone head on or relatively head on, they should not be able to see the white up there. And increasingly, when I see people talk, and, and this, this goes for in person too. Well, actually, I've noticed this with people I know who have actually been going through some sort of mental issue, especially a manic state, but a, a very dark, like destructive manic state. I've noticed that their eyes get that way. Because it's just, I can't imagine talking to somebody and my eyes even doing that. You know, I can't imagine like letting my, I can't imagine like thinking that when I need to talk, I need to open my eyes up as big as possible. Like I'm doing that right now as I'm saying this and I feel freaking insane. Like I feel like a crazy person, like just thinking about looking at someone with that intensity and it doesn't, it doesn't feel right or normal. It's not comfortable. But increasingly, I'm seeing people look that way. And I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm just not even sure what to think about it. But point being, like, I, I was actually, I was expecting that from Rose McGowan because I'm noticing it so often now. I'm noticing it so often now that, like, I was like, okay, this is going to be a video of Rose McGowan ranting about Oprah and lizard people. 
I'm expecting her to seem completely unhinged, but it was just her like sitting there in a in a hospital bed because I guess she got stung by a murder. <laughs> she got stung by a murder hornet. <laughs> so her her story is just uh, is something right now. But she got stung by a murder hornet. And so it's her like in, in a hospital bed. And, and it really was like there's a, a photo of the murder hornet. It's like because, you know, because people are like, oh, she's crazy. She's she's she invented this murder hornet story. You no, know, she had a picture of the murder hornet and they're very distinctive looking. And because uh, it died. Um, but uh, I was just shocked that like she didn't seem that unhinged. And I mean, like people can I'm not saying that's that means she's sane. I, I'm not, it is, what I'm saying is it doesn't even matter to me. But what I thought was interesting is that for somebody who's making such outwardly outrageous claims, she didn't seem unhinged. Like, she seemed pretty laid back about it. Just like she's been fighting this battle a long time and there's just another bump, you know. That's kind of how she came across and her eyes weren't that way at all. And I'm, I'm just, it's, it's honestly been really freaking me out. I'm like, what makes your eyes do that? Like, that's not smiling with your eyes, as, as they say. Like, you know how there's that photo technique where if, like, someone's taking a photo, like, you you do this thing called, like, smiling with your eyes. Like, girls are good at it. And it, it, it kind of gives your eyes kind of like a, I don't know, like, it, it makes your eyes look friendly or something. They're not doing that. They're, like, opening their eyes as wide as possible while they're preaching about how people should wear a mask or take the vaccine or listen to them about this or or on the other side, like not take the vaccine. Like basically anybody who's really putting themselves out there on video right now about a heated subject, there's a decent chance no matter what it is they're talking about, their eyes look like they're bulging out of their skull. And they have, it, it's funny because I saw this, this old psychology textbook that had this, it was a drawing, it was a cool drawing of just a pair of eyes and it said those were the psychopath eyes. And I don't want to resort. I mean, it feels like low-hanging fruit to be like, all these people are psychos. They're a bunch of psychos. I can see it in their eyes. It does kind of feel that way, though. Like, there is this fervor. And like I was saying, like, the only time that I really rem remember seeing that in person with anybody I know is when somebody I know personally is having some kind of mental break. Where like they look at you and their eyes look like they're going to bulge out of their skull. And yes, you can see that little white part. And maybe I sound insane noticing that. But I can't, uh, I can't be, a sh I can't be, a sh you know, I shouldn't be ashamed of myself for noticing something. So anyway, my, my take on Rose McGowan is that, I don't know, I feel like there's substance. She's a weird person. She probably is having some kind of break. Because now's the time where... You know, we really should be looking for that. And I think it's evident. I mean, that's what I said at the start of Corona I was like, man, like, no matter what happens with the Corona itself, people's minds are just going to be broken. And we have a tendency to think of that. We have a tendency to think of mental illness. Like, for example, here's an example. Like, you almost... Uh, you kind of dramatize mental illness in your mind. Like in the same way you dramatize a fight. Like when you think about what a fight is like, you have a tendency to think of a movie fight where like everything is slow and you're seeing it from all these different angles. But when you actually see people fighting, it's all so quick and you don't even really know what's going on. Like sometimes it's hard to even tell if someone's punched. And I haven't seen a lot of fights or anything, but it is something that happens where... When you actually see a real fight, it's so different from what your visual of that is.
And I feel the same way about mental illness. And, you know, even though I criticize our preoccupation with psychology and specifically some of the ways that like the therapy industry has started to influence our culture, as I say, like these are great tools. I fully believe that modern psychology as well as the the practices like like mental health practices i believe that they they are a useful tool but i think we have a tendency to think of them and like we te- when we hear that somebody is mentally ill we tend to imagine like the most severe and obvious cases where somebody is spouting delusion but if you know somebody who's mentally ill, and you know they are, like either they've told you, like where it's like they are somebody where like they fit into that box. But you'll notice that like you don't even realize where it's creeping in. Because like you're still thinking of them as a human being, which they are. But when they start to exhibit these signs or behaviors, they creep up and you might not even realize they're taking place. Like you might not even realize what's going on. And then you realize at some point that they are living in a different reality than you. And I'm not talking about some sort of um, psychosis necessarily, although that's part of it. I'm just saying it's like you end up realizing that you're not even talking about the same thing and that they're they're in a much different place that's not good. But it can be hard to recognize. You know, it can be very difficult to recognize because it's it's almost like that movie. It's like you expect a schizophrenic to be like, oh, it's like a beautiful mind. You ever seen a beautiful a beautiful mind with the uh, Russell Crow? Russell Crow? You ever seen him? You know, it's like you imagine like schizophrenia is like that. And there are some schizophrenics who are you know are magicians. You know, there there are people who it really does feel like sometimes like if you if you've met somebody who could be like diagnosed schizophrenic, like some of them it's like meeting a magician. But other other times, like somebody who has that same diagnosis, it's just like, whoa, this is just, it's just sad. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just bad and sad, you know, that, that can happen. But sometimes, like, you don't even know it until you see it, especially with mental illness that isn't that obvious. You know, especially with mental illness that isn't that obvious, it's a little more subtle. Like, you're expecting it to be like a cartoon or something, and it's not. And so it's difficult to recognize So I don't know, this ended up being about celebrity mental health somehow. You know, partially because these people are disruptive to what's expected of them. And then then Rose McGowan is, she's definitely, in addition to making these claims about Oprah and lizard people and calling people out for the last number of years, she's also just giving her middle finger to everything. Like she's giving her middle finger to like every institutional power Hollywood, the media, politics. Like she's somebody who's just going out there and saying like, I'm not picking a side. I'm just giving my middle finger to all of you. And so she, she's relevant to this. I brought her up just because that's going on where she's another example of somebody who's come out of the woodwork just to be like, you know, fuck you all. Which I think, you know, she, people might call her crazy. They might think she's having a breakdown, but I mean, when I saw what she was saying, I was like, I think a lot of people feel this way. Well, they might use different words. They might have a different way of saying it. They might not invoke the lizard people. <laughs> they might have nothing against Oprah. But this is how a lot of people are feeling about the pseudo-elites. 
Because this is a point that's been pointed out. A point that's been pointed out. Hey, sometimes you got to point out a point. You point at a point at a point. <laughs> but uh, I don't even know what the point was. Um, what was it? Uh, oh, yeah, it was about like kind of the pseudo elites because like people will talk about the elites and they typically mean like the journalist class who, who they the journalist class is a strange one. You know, and I'm, I think I'll just kind of leave it at that. I've talked, I talked about that a little while back and I've talked about journalists before, but it's like, they're kind of included in that, but they're not like the elite of the elite. They're kind of the, the messenger of the elite is how they're seen. Many of them are seen, especially the ones who are just deeply entrenched. That'd be a good way to put it. That's all I need to say about a journalist is they're, they're basically the messengers of the elite, at least the, the deeply entrenched ones. But then we have these politicians, we have celebrities, we have executives, we have billionaires, we have all these different people. I mean, you could, there's probably many different different groups that are part of the modern elite, but they're not elites in like the nobility sense. Like, well, we do see multiple generations, like Dick Cheney's daughter is now a politician. You know, the Bushes, like we see these dynasties, the Clintons, you know, we see where the same names come up again and again in politics, and in Hollywood, for that matter, like the number, the, the amount of nepotism. And nepotism isn't a dirty word to me. I think we should just, well, we, we should always be aware of it. It's like, I think we need to get away from nepotism being a dirty word. Because it's almost always used in a strictly pejorative sense, even though most instances of nepotism are just natural. You know, like in my medieval castle book I had as a kid, it had a gong farmer it was a guy who shovels the shit in the, in the latrine of the castle. And it said that he, he was, it said that like the gong farmer was part of a long line of gong farmers, you know, just like everything was like, if your dad was a blacksmith, you're a blacksmith. You shoveled, your dad shoveled the shit in the castle. You shovel the shit, you know, that's not nepotism. And it, that still goes on where it's like relatives take over the business of a relative. The son takes over the company from his father. But, you know, you can see where our elites do that, but not really to, it's, it's not along nobility lines. Like, even though they've kind of created this nobility, this class of people, they're not true nobility. And other people have, have explained this far better than I have, described it more appropriately, better than I have. But it resonated with me because I was like, yeah, they aren't really true elites. And then the argument that I've seen made is that they are also too similar like they have far too many similarities with the common people. Basically, they're just more luxurious people. They're like more luxurious versions of us. It's like they they are culture. They are still part of the same culture. And then, of course, you know who knows what goes on behind closed doors and in back rooms and all that. But just as far as the way they superficially appear, they basically do what we do, but with more luxury, the more expensive version the more exclusive version, but it's all kind of the same thing they're participating in. So this is an interesting aspect of our elites, but whether they're pseudo elites or elites, it's like the, the amount of resentment is huge and that's universal. You know, and you can look at like our, you can look at all popular politics, doesn't matter which party in America today. And maybe this is just a, this, this might just be one of those things that's always true throughout history. 
And it just becomes more obvious sometimes. I'm willing to believe that. But when you look at it, it's like most politicians, most powerful people in America today are basically just trying to keep the lions down, or at least that's how it seems. Like they know that people resent them. They know that people are becoming increasingly vocal about their suspicions and outright animosity toward elites. And so in many ways, like most of their decisions are trying to fend that off. That's not so much what's going on culturally, though. Like the cultural power base informs the... It feels like the cultural power base informs the people far more than the people inform it. But, um, you know, Rose McGowan's sentiments, I feel like regardless of the way she phrased them, I do feel like they speak to something. And whether it's effective or not to frame it the way she frames really doesn't make a difference to me. I just kind of like that she's throwing some chaos out there. Anytime a celebrity isn't just trying to talk to you like a baby, I feel like that's a, a win. Because increasingly that's what we see. Where, like, I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between, like, a late-night TV show and, like, an adult reading a children's book to kids. And that feels, like, kind of too obvious to say. That feels like low-hanging fruit. I mean, talking about late-night TV at all feels that way. But when you watch it, you really do kind of get that feeling that, oh, yeah, they might as well be just sitting in a chair with a bunch of people cross-legged in front of them saying, like, and the lion woke up in his bed and he wanted something to eat do you know what the lion did he went to the jungle here is the lion walking to the jimmy fallon might as well be reading something like that and I was, that's that's a, a story i'm writing i make that was just off the top of my head because it's from a story a children's book i'm writing it's called the lion wants something to eat And, you know, I will know that I've made it when a late night TV show host has his audience sit cross-legged in front of him and slowly reads the lion wants something to eat to those people. But you, you wonder about the pressure those people feel. But I also just wonder, like, what is it that keeps them involved? You know, obviously money is a huge factor. Being in the public is a huge factor. But some of them just seem like they have the life sucked out of them too. Some of them do come across like they'd be more than happy to do what Rose McGowan did. You know, some people, not, not necessarily the late night TV show hosts, but there are some people, some celebrities, there are some people in the public where you do kind of get a feeling from them. Like they would love to say more, but it's just, they've decided that's not their role. And I respect that. I respect that so long as they don't feed into the nonsense. And many of them do. But I think it's the industry that's the bigger problem.
And the whole system has been threatened by the fact that more and more people have seized the means of production. Because it's not just the fact that you can become a YouTube star or a Twitch streamer. A Twitch streamer. You just sit in front of a camera and you twitch. Although it turns out that's what's... Oh, geez. I didn't even mean to play into current events, but like that's a new thing. I read an article today. I'd heard about it in passing a couple weeks ago, but I actually read a full-on article about that trend where it's like all of these teenage girls now have Tourette's. I did that episode about Tourette's while I was shaving, and I don't remember if I, that was going on at the time. But it's it's come out that all of these teenage girls are coming out with like a form of Tourette's or tics, specifically tics, where they're, they've developed these physical tics. And it's because like there's this genre of video kids are watching on TikTok of people having tics. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people were talking about this. Like I said, there was an article about it and like a study even. People are researching this because all of these girls have come out and they, they say they can't control it. They have physical tics but it, they it said all of them have been watching these videos of kids around the world having tics and it's an entire genre like there are kids who have had legitimate Tourette's or or uh, not Asperger's um, I guess just there are people with Tourette's and tics who have become very famous TikTok and YouTube stars and these kids have been watching their videos obsessively and now they have those same tics Like, careful. <laughs> Be very careful. Uh, <laughs> careful what you watch, I guess. Uh, maybe that is an argument for censor censorship. It's like, maybe maybe things are a much stronger gateway. <laughs> I'm willing to, you know, if kids can get, if they can develop Tourette's just by watching YouTube videos of other kids with Tourette's. And I almost wonder, though, it's like if they, if they started doing it, if they faked it first. And it's one of those things where, like, they faked it too much and now it's real. Almost like an alternative version of that thing they used to say to kids where it's like, if you keep making that face, it's going to stay like that. If you keep pretending to have Tourette's, you're going to have Tourette's. Um, <laughs> so it's like maybe that is an argument that if you pay attention or, or you, you mimic something too much, it becomes you. You always got to be careful. Nietzsche, you know, staring into the abyss and the abyss staring back. <laughs> the most famous overused Nietzsche quote and I'm probably not even getting it right but it does make you think about that like if you stare into the abyss I think I think if you're sitting around watching videos of people's Tourette tics I kind of think that you're staring into the abyss right that seems pretty abysmal to me I've never made it there but the fact that so many girls are developing it, it's insane twitch streamers turns out twitch was a little too accurate Twitch was was a little too accurate for its own good. Although I don't think these people are getting it from Twitch, but it's funny to me that there's a major streaming service called Twitch, and all of these girls and kids are developing real Twitches by watching online videos. Just too weird, too, and just it has so many implications for other things, other trends among kids. Because it does make me think too. Like I can imagine kids pretending to have. Ticks. Like I even said when I was a kid, like I mentioned it in that Tourette's episode, I said when I was a kid, like it was kind of a joke boys would make where they'd be like, I wish I had Tourette's because then I could say whatever I wanted, which is a funny joke for kids, but it's just, it, it, people would repeat that. Like I heard that a number of times as a kid, like kids would be like, I, I wish I had Tourette's because I could just swear wherever I want. But you know what's interesting is like 
kids is like faking having braces. Like kids used to want braces just to be cool. Like if a cool kid had braces, other kids would want braces even if they didn't need them. That was even in a book. There was a book we had to read way back when in school. And it was about a girl. It might have been one of the Ramona books. I don't remember. But in it, like she wanted braces because her classmates had them. And so she used paper clips or something. Or she used... um, she used something like paper clips or staples. I don't know what she used to make fake braces. So I feel like that tick thing, make, you know, it's kind of in that same ballpark where it's like, I wonder if, because I mean, if they just watched the videos and got started developing ticks just by watching them, well, that blows my mind. If it was just pure osmosis where just by watching it, they developed it. Well, that's pretty crazy. It wouldn't surprise me, but it's pretty crazy. There's that use of the word crazy. Um, but if they were mimicking it, I can understand it a little more. Because if they were mimicking it, it was like they probably were like, well, here's here's something that makes me unique and interesting. You know, because to teenagers, their hunt for jewels, the hunt for jewels for a teenager is like finding your unique and interesting quality that you can exploit. And so braces, I mean, kids used to want casts. You know, like if somebody in your class had a cast, it seems so strange. And a part of you is like, I, I kind of wish I had a cast. So I think it's all part of that. Like there's this kind of desire, like sometimes having an injury or something wrong with you that gives you some kind of decoration. It, it becomes coveted by kids in, in a weird way. So it wouldn't surprise me if these kids were like, hey, that's because this kid. And especially when you see somebody who's popular for that, because apparently like this all goes back to some kid who became popular on one of these sites, on one of these sites. He got popular on one of these websites. But he got popular on one of these websites by showing off his tics or like working his tics into some sort of like comedy routine. I don't know what it was. I don't know, just a lot of interesting stuff going on in that. But back to my original thought, which was, I, I you know, talking about like these, the way that people seize the means of production and they were able to produce their own material. It's not just that people did that with entertainment. You know, it's not just that like YouTube stars were able to just make videos of them and their friends screwing around and became celebrities, rich celebrities and podcasts and all the, the other, the other number of ways that people have circumvented the old system and not even on purpose, just because you can, and it's better, <laughs> you know? I and mean, when you think about the changes that have taken place, it is truly as simple as I can do this, and it's better to do this. And that's what scares the industry more than anything. That's what scares the, the entertainment industry more than anything else. It's that those people have the best motivation in the world. That I can do this and it's better. It gives me more control. And it gives the audience better access. And more and direct access to me. If, if you're a famous person on YouTube or something, it's like your fans inter can interact with you. You don't even need the, the public relations. You don't even need, you don't need the industry for much of anything. So of course that's a major threat. But what's very interesting about it is it's also played out in journalism. We're seeing where the, the having the means of production has also given people increased ability to get away from these, you know, manipulative and corrupt institutions and just do their own thing. I mean, there's quite a few journalists who are now making huge amounts of money. Independent journalists who are just self-publishing through some of these subscription services 
it's come out that they're making like like there's one guy and it came out that like he's making eight hundred thousand dollars. I mean, I always find kind of dis- discussing people's finances disgusting, even if they're famous. But it is interesting. I mean, I'm not naming him. It doesn't even matter. It's public information. But um, I just I, I I don't like to talk about that kind of thing. But anyway. This guy came out that like just through this one subscription service he offers where he writes a few articles a week, he's making $800,000. And that's probably in addition to whatever else he's doing because that's not his only – he's probably writing for other people. He's probably you know being hired to write he, – he's an author. He, he writes books. So, I mean, this guy's making over a million dollars for sure through his writing. And I mean, the idea of a journalist, I mean, I don't know what journalist salaries are like. You know, obviously the most famous ones make a lot of money. But I've never heard of journalism being particularly lucrative, especially independent journalism. So the idea that an independent journalist who has had issues with with other, he's had issues with the news industry, as many people rightfully have, and that he's making over a million dollars easily, like $800,000 that we know of just from one platform plus everything else he's done. It's like, that is a major, major deal. That is a big deal. And there are people who don't like that. So it's not just that the entertainment industry has been the most obvious industry affected by people having the means of production. It's that journalism is being increasingly affected during a time where journalism is just a shadow of what it was when I was growing up. Like, like a, a mainstream news is a shadow of what it was. Like it's still omnipresent and there, which tells you something. But just like the, they're making very little money. Like you go to their websites, it's like most, I don't know when it happened, but at some point, like you used to be able to go to big news websites and read their articles and you could just read them. But it's like increasingly they, as, as the actual physical newspaper um, sales have died down and it's more difficult for them to make money that way by selling newspapers and advertising in newspapers. And now they basically rely on advertising on their websites. You know, they, they've demanded that people pay subscriptions. You have to get a paid subscription to read their online articles. Maybe that's been around longer than I realized, but it does feel like when you go to many news websites these days, you can't read the article because it either gives you like three free views. Like I know the local Olympia newspaper, it gives you like two or three free views. Like you can read three articles per month and then it asks, then you can't read them. It just asks you for money. And a, a lot of other newspapers follow similar formats. And you know, at a time, too, when there's just so much skepticism and cynicism toward newspapers and mainstream news outlets, you know, so they, of course, hate the fact that independent journalists are doing their own thing. They're not answering to anybody. And so there have been smear campaigns based on that. Like we can see where like a lot of these smear campaigns you know, while it's hard to piece the entire conspiracy together, I mean, you definitely see certain patterns where a lot of this seems focused on people that aren't controlled by these industries. And not just, it's not just that they're not controlled. They have a huge audience. 
Because that's what the these people care about more than anything. That's why they weren't as worried about all of this when the internet was more decentralized and people were saying things off in their own corner of the internet. When the internet became centralized, you know, there's a lot of benefit to that. As much as I've criticized the centralization of the internet, there's a lot of benefit to it as well. There's, there is benefit to having everything in the same place. It's also expanded the reach of you know, private, con uh, basically just independent creators, independent entities. It's expanded their reach as well, which is, I think is one of the reasons why they're often targeted. Like the internet tries to decentralize those people. And it's not a coincidence that those people often say things that the mainstream news isn't saying or isn't saying as much about. You know, there is a conflict of interest there in terms of this person might be telling a different side of the story. And I'm not talking about fringe people. I'm talking about fairly reputable, I mean, very reputable people in some cases. I don't need to name names, but it's like there are some people who are very balanced people who have their own beat, maybe. But I believe that they have integrity. And that seems to be what the mainstream media, the news, the entertainment industry, all of these cliche targets that seem like low-hanging fruit to criticize them. Like, I might as well be Robert Anton Wilson or anybody from the past being like, you can't trust the mainstream news. You can't, don't watch TV. You know, I, I feel like one of those people. But why did those people emphasize that so much? Why did these incredibly intelligent guys, counterculture figures, emphasize that so much? Why did Marshall McLuhan go on and on about television and the global village and what technology would do? But specifically like those counterculture guys from decades past who would always be, I mean, George Carlin even, because he's if you watch Robert Anton Wilson lectures, he does these little comedy bits and he just sounds like he's doing a George Carlin. I mean, they're pretty much saying the same things in the same tone of voice. Um, but, you know, there's a reason why they always point out what seems obvious to us now, which is that, like, yeah, the mainstream news, TV, the government, the dominant forces in culture, don't trust them. That's what those guys were always saying. But it, it does end up being the truth, even though it's obvious. But sometimes you have to point out the obvious because we're seeing now how hard those people are willing to fight for their position, how dirty they're willing to be. But it's also a privilege to see that. You know what I mean? That I truly mean it. I feel privileged that I get to see this sort of culture battle take place. And maybe I'm dramatizing it. I don't think I am. Because this, this is what I see taking place. I think this is what many people see taking place. But what's interesting is it's, you know, in seizing the means of operation, because years ago I said that, you know, it was in one of the old YouTube shows that I did. It was in one of the old School Night TV episodes. I said, this is a really interesting time because the people have seized the means of production and there's nothing that these industries can do about it. But what I didn't realize at the time was how far they were willing to go to censor and intimidate. And not just that the, the industries themselves would facilitate that, but that 
large groups of civilians would push for it. Like, and that was already happening then. You know, it, like civilians were already, I mean, this, like I made that video in like 2017. So like all of this was already underway. It was not, you know, I, w I was watching all of this play out. I would have been saying many of the same things I'm saying now then. But what I completely ignored was the fact that like I didn't expect YouTube to take as hard of a line. Like I didn't expect as much censorship as there has been since 2017. I expected some. But I didn't expect, one, this amount of censorship. I didn't expect this amount of pressure and intimidation. And I didn't expect that civilians themselves would support it. At least not in the numbers they have. So that has surprised me. You know, that, that has definitely surprised me. And so in that way, while we've seized the means of production, like we've seized the equipment, they can close that window down very quickly. And it... You know, it's not just to it because it, it's like the idea is that like, oh, well, you can find an alternative. But then we see where hosting services get into it and say, well, we won't host you. And while some of these are very offensive, like some of the people who have been put in that position are certainly more offensive and out there than others. We've seen where people with fairly moderate perspectives. Not that that should be the basis, because that's not my basis. My basis is everyone, but it does, it does tell us something that even fairly moderate viewpoints have been given the same treatment, because that's typically how it works. And it's not surprising that it ends up playing out that way, because that's how it usually does play out. History shows that. But I think we should avoid making obvious comparisons like I've never read 1984 and I never used 1984 as a comparison or a, an analogy I think it's actually very distracting because you saw that during Trumpsfeld where people who hated Trumpsfeld were like we're living in 1984 oh my god Trumpsfeld he's 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 made 1984 a reality and then you can see where reactionaries are saying the same thing like we're living in 1984 you know, I'm just, I, I've never read 1984. It's so obvious. I'm sure it's relevant. But people talk, what's funny is when people bring up 1984, they always say, he predicted everything. George Orwell, George Orwell predicted everything. And it's like he wasn't predicting. He was pulling from the, the entirety. He was pulling from his understanding of human history. And I, I've never, I don't know this. He's, maybe he's done interviews where he breaks it down and he says, you know what? I'm the new Nostradamus. I, I'm predicting what's going to happen in the future. No, I think it's far more likely that a guy like George Orwell, I have, I have read Aminal Farm. I read Aminal Farm. Um, but, you know, he, he's, and I, I read, I've read a couple of his books. I haven't read 1984. But I can tell you, like, knowing the, a guy of his intellect, of his ability... I'm not even a George Orwell fan, I wouldn't say. I found his books very readable, the ones that I read. But he wasn't predicting the future. He wasn't prophesying. He was pulling from the entirety of human history. But he, he was putting it in a modern context, I'm sure. And I'm talking about a book I haven't read, so I should stop. But that is my take on it. It's like you shouldn't look at it as a prediction so much as he recognized that the same pattern plays out.
and it does. But I think people should avoid using that comparison because it's tired and everybody, it's kind of like South Park. And you know, that shouldn't, that shouldn't sound as uh, funny as it is. Cause I mean, I, I wouldn't say that South Park is any less relevant as far as social commentary and profundity than, than 1984 or, or Animal Farm. Like I think South Park pointed out just as much and told just as compelling of a story to modern viewers watching a cartoon. Like I think that the stories pl that play out in South Park and the commentary, I think those are just as relevant as 1984 is. But I think what they both have in common is that they they spoke in such a way. <laughs> and again, I'm just I'm just going off my own cultural osmosis of 1984, but I can see the way people react to it, and that's what I'm basing my this statement on, which is that like South Park, 1984 is one of those things that you can kind of read into however you want. Like I think somebody can read 1984. It seems like you can read that. And if you are right leaning, you'll go, the left wing is just like 1984. Whereas if you're on the left wing and you read 1984, you go, look, the Republicans just like 1984. I think you kind of see what you want in it. And that's kind of how South Park was, maybe still is, where it was like, it didn't really matter what your political persuasion was, as long as you're not easily offended and you're willing to laugh. It seemed like you could kind of get any perspective you wanted out of South Park. Like it could feed into your leftist views. It could feed into your right wing views because it wasn't trying to do either one. It was just trying to talk about civilization, people. And so, but I think you should avoid using it for that reason. You know, when something is, because I mean, I, I've seen that in arguments that people make, like somebody will be like, oh, we're living in 1984. And then like somebody who disagrees with them about like their use of, of that will say, have you even read 1984? Did you even understand it? No, no, no. 1984 wasn't talking about Joe Obama bin Biden. It was talking about Trumpsfeld. George Orwell didn't predict Joe Biden. It, he predicted Trumpsfeld. You know, people will get into that where it's like, no, you didn't even understand it. Like you create, you create a useless argument sometimes when you use something as a comparison. Because you should just be able to say, not like we're living in 1984, but we are living in an age of voyeurism, censorship, increasingly drastic self-policing, you know, authoritarian measures have been put in place throughout the world to deal with this pandemic, a highly politicized pandemic. Just describe things exactly as they are. You know, describe things exactly as they are without saying it's just like this. It's just like this movie. Because then you, you create the argument of, you can easily start arguing about the movie or the book itself when you do that. You should just be able to say what is happening in our country right now in its own context is wrong. This particular issue is, I feel this way about this particular issue. I have great concerns about this new rule, this new mandate, what this group of people is doing, what is happening to free speech online and pretty much everywhere else. Like you should be able to outline that on its own without needing to rely on a book's prophecy.
because you end up arguing about the book or you just, you become another person talking about 1984, which might be the worst thing of all. Because when I see somebody making a 1984 comparison, I just kind of roll my eyes, even when I agree with them, even when they're using it in a way that I agree with about an issue I agree with. When someone uses 1984, I'm just like, eh, come on, eh, come on. I mean, another obvious one is World War II. Another, you know, being like, no, I think you're acting like a Nazi. Oh, what you're doing, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of what was going on in Germany during the Weimar Republic right before the Nazis took over. Oh, that's funny, because I, th I was thinking that you, uh, you're acting like Germany right before the Nazis took over. You know, it's like you get into an argument about that. Where it's like you were only using it for a comparison, but when you use that, it's pure hyperbole. And 1984 is as well, because it is fiction. So it's like when you use that, you insert you automatically insert hyperbole into the argument. Like when you bring up the Nazis, like when you bring up Hitler today to describe a politician you oppose, you turn that into a discussion of Hitler. And that automatically kills your argument. Like, I felt that way. Like, I didn't like George W. Bush when he was in office. I was not into what was going on when George W. Bush was in office. But when people said Bush equals Hitler, I was like, oh, even if I agree with you, even if I agree with the fact that you don't like him or think he's making poor decisions for our country, don't do that. Don't invoke Hitler. And then you see where people did it for Obama. I mean, there were people out there with, uh, I remember seeing signs, people protesting Obama that said Obama equals Hitler. And one of the reasons you do that is because you saw the other guy doing it. And it's all equally absurd. And then it, it, took, it went full steam with Trumpsfeld where it's like, no guys, you, you guys don't understand. You don't understand. I don't think you're listening. I don't think you're listening. If Trumpsfeld takes over, they're literally going to turn the United States into a, a reenactment of World War II. Like Trump and his supporters, they're actually planning on, you know, Civil War reenactments? You know what a Civil War reenactment is? A reenactment? Trumpsfeld and his supporters are, are, are World War II reenactors, and they're going to pretend to be the Nazis. Like that was the sort of things people were saying, honestly, like... I wish they said it like that. They're, no, you don't understand. Trumpsfeld, he's literally a World War II reenactor. And he's actually going to cut his hair like Hitler and have a little mustache. Like he's actually going to try to look like Hitler. Don't you get it? You know, it's like, that's kind of honestly not too far off from the way people were talking. And it's like, why can't you make your point without using hyperbole? Because if you invoke Hitler... You're automatically using hyperbole. You might as well be saying evil, and there's a good chance you are saying evil in addition to that. You're saying he is the Antichrist, and he is going to bring evil upon this land. But you should be able to say that by simply describing him exactly as he is. And you create another argument, and you actually shoot yourself in the foot. Because the only people who are going to respond favorably to the idea that Trumpsfeld is actually Adolf Hitler. He never died. 
You know, when you say that, it's like the only person who's going to take you seriously is the person who already agrees with you. Like there's there's not a single Trumpsfeld supporter who saw somebody say Trumpsfeld is actually Hitler and thought, oh, wow, I didn't realize that. I'd love to meet that Trumpsfeld supporter who heard somebody say Trump equals Hitler and they said, oh, my God, I, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know. Oh, my God. You know, people might defect for other reasons. They might switch sides for other reasons. They might turn on Trump for other reasons, you know. But it's like I don't think that anybody heard someone from the anti-Trump faction say Trump is Hitler, use hyperbole, and then thought like a light bulb, light bulb. I didn't realize that. You're right. You're When you're right, you're right. Trump is, is Hitler. Instead, it just weakens your argument to people. Like there are people out there for sure that like when they see somebody say that, they go the opposite direction. Like when they see someone like trying to say that hyperbole is reality or just use like such an obvious historic point of reference, something that most people probably wouldn't even be able to explain. Like in, in those episodes where I was talking about world, like, and I'm not a I'm not a World War II expert at all, not by any means. But in those episodes, I think it was last week or whenever it was, where I was just talking about Hitler a bunch. You know, I mean, like the, the sort of person who's saying that Trumpsfeld, that, that Mega was basically a reenactment of Nazi Germany. Would they even be able to tell you the things that I told you? <laughs> I don't mean it to sound that way. No, like would they even be, would they even know the just basic facts of like how World War II started, like what was going on, like how much of the actual story do they even remember? And I don't think that's essential to their point or anything, because they're not actually trying to make a point. They're just trying. They're just being as blunt as possible, because because that's just purely incendiary. You know, when you like like saying Obama is Hitler. You're not like there's like, I mean, I could say the same for that, where it's like the sort of people who are saying Obama is Hitler. I don't think any Obama, I don't think any Obama supporters heard that Obama, Obama is Hitler. And we're like, gee, I never thought of it. I'm joining you. I don't think anybody joined the Republicans because they saw a sign or heard somebody say that Obama is Hitler. I just don't think that happens. So it's purely incendiary because it's not designed to actually entice anybody. And it's it's same it's the same thing that I said to people who are like angry about the vaccine and like angry about people not taking the vaccine. It's like your anger isn't going to convince anybody. It's going to make them double down. Like oh yeah, you know, it's 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 uh September 2021 and there are people who refuse to get the vaccine and refuse to wear a mask. They've weathered the storm this far. They've been fighting this fight all along. Do you really think that you being angry at them is going to be the thing that brings them over? You know, do you really think that your anger and especially demonization of them is going to be the thing that brings them over? No, you're just outraged. You, you, you listener, because I know you're doing this. No, but, you know, it's just, it's, it's expressing outrage. It's trying to, to fuel, to fuel and fan the flames. 
and it's not effective. And I, I feel the same way about 1984 comparisons. I feel the same way about World War II comparisons. Because you, you create an argument about those things. Like now you're arguing about an analogy. And you're also causing a lot of people to just roll their eyes. Even people who agree with you will roll their eyes. Because that always sucks. It always sucks so much when somebody you agree with says something really stupid that undermines their argument and in turn yours. But, you know, that's their right to say it. It just sucks. It's like that story I told on here about, like, my friend and I being at this campground when we were kids. And we got in a fight with these kids at the pool. Not a serious fight, but it was like there were two of us and two of them. And we, we had the entire pool to ourselves. So what are you going to do? We start, like, splashing water and, like, throwing things at each other. You know, it didn't get, like, too heated, but they were these local kids who lived in the area, and we were just staying at the campground. And we were, like, splashing water and just, you know, doing what kids do and kind of, like, trading insults. Nothing serious. We were pretty young. But my friend just goes, he splashes water at them, and he just says, Take that, you you piece of cheese. And I was, like, even just saying it right now, I, I cringe inside because it's like, did you just call them a piece of cheese? You know, it's just like, oh, man, I'm on your side and look what you just did to me. We're on the same team, dude. Look what you just did to me. Because the kids, again, too, the, the two guys we were fighting, they just stopped and looked at each other and like, in like disgust and laughter and we're just like, piece of cheese and they just left they were they won you know they just they ended up leaving they went home because it was just like oh we're not gonna we won you just lost you lost it for yourself you called us a piece of cheese and uh i, I felt disgusted with my friend because it's like the same sort of feeling like if somebody was like we're living in 1984 like if he yelled that in the pool what are you guys, big brother? Like if he said that, what do you think? You, you own the pool? You think you're big brother telling us what to do? It's like he might as well have said that. I get the same feeling where it's like, oh, no, we're on the same side. I can't, you know, I wish you didn't say that. <laughs> I'm sure someone might feel that way about me, too, though. You know, it, it's, it goes all ways. But there is like something about that. And I feel that way whenever somebody uses hyperbole. Like, like right now, I mean, people on the right wing are like, you see what's going on in Australia? It's like Nazi Germany. What they're doing? It's like Nazi Germany. And it's like, don't even make that comparison. I've talked about like how I find what's going on in Australia extremely disturbing. I find what's transpiring in Australia to be unexpected. And maybe it's because I don't know much about Australian government, but it's unexpected and disturbing what Australia is doing, what other places are doing as well. But Australia seems to be leading the race. But I wouldn't compare them to Nazi Germany. Like, even though they've built these quarantine houses, like, they've built these quarantine camps. People are making obvious comparisons. Like, anytime you build a camp, and I think it's insane and fucked up that they have those. A quarantine camp? You're forcing people to go to a quarantine camp if they test positive. Why not just say that, though? Like, I have a problem with you sending people to camps because that, that's what you're doing. I have a problem with you developing tracking software to know where people are, which is another thing they're apparently doing. 
I have a problem with you arresting a dad in the woods for not wearing a mask when he's just with his daughter. You know, I have, I have a problem with them doing that. I don't need to compare it to World War II, though, or 1984, because I feel like that kind of undermines the argument. Why can't we just refer to the present as the present? And I mean, I, I make a lot of comparisons and analogies. I mean, it's kind of like the primary way I think is kind of seeing the parallels between things. But I think there's a time and a place for that. And there also reaches a certain point where you can't use something anymore. Like there are plenty of other examples throughout history of governments, of empires. You could compare it to them, but Germany is more recent. What happened in Germany was severe, so it's easy to grab hold of. But more importantly, the reason people use Germany so much is because everybody else uses it so much. But that also, it's like the law of diminishing returns. We're back there. Well, like if you use the same comparison or analogy too much, you yield less from that. Like the more that you compare things to Hitler, the more the returns diminish and it has less value. And most people, most rational people just roll their eyes and are just irritated, even if they agree with you. And that's the important part is like, even the people who agree with you hear that and they're just like, ah. So the law of diminishing returns plays out again. And you know, as far as like how things are gonna go, I don't know. I mean, there are people who might very well hear me going on about this subject all the time and be like, you're making way too big of a deal out of this. I don't think I am though. I don't think that I am. And I, I keep it here for now. You know, I keep most of this talk here because I don't want to impose it on other people. You know, it kind of goes back to the idea of like, you know, uh, go back to so many ideas. It kind of goes back to the idea, though, of like if somebody finds their way to something and is bothered by it, what right do they have to be bothered? As long as they aren't trapped, as long as it isn't forced upon them, how can you be bothered by something? And that's the strange thing about many of these cancellations, as they're called. I don't love that term, but it's what people use. But it's, it's not just people getting canceled. It's not just celebrities and people who are putting themselves out there, they get canceled. It's also your taste that they're trying to cancel. It's also your humor. It's your judgment. And that's the biggest problem of all, is that all of this is designed to limit you from making your own judgments. And that's one thing if it's a logical process where you're thinking about something. I have to consider this to know how I feel. But they're also doing it with things that are just innate parts of us, like our sense of humor. What we find interesting. And you're told that, you know, you don't really have the qualifications. You're not qualified to decide what you find funny or what you find interesting. And we're not even going to give you the opportunity to form a judgment about that on your own. 
And if that isn't misanthropy, I don't know what is. Hey.